You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep it around for us. All right, we are just going through some of this breaking news. Moments ago, President Trump issued another round of pardons, including for some very big names. I want to tell you a story about obnoxious obstructions and pathetic pardons. President Donald Trump is spending the holidays in Florida at his golf course. But he had time last night to hand out early Christmas gifts to dozens of allies and loyalists in the form of controversial presidential pardons. Once upon a time, there was an American president who was like Peter Rabbit, always getting into mischief. And lordy be, he had a lot of running buddies who committed plain old crimes. The man who helped get Donald Trump into the White House now faces almost seven years in prison on charges stemming from his political consulting in Ukraine. President Trump's former national security advisor admitting he lied to the FBI. One of Donald Trump's close confidants is now under arrest. And there he is, Roger Stone. Former Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos has been sentenced to 14. Steve Bannon has been arrested and indicted by the Manhattan U.S. attorney. The lot of them kept getting prosecuted, which opened up the risk that some of them would spill the carrots on President Trump, which would make his own harrowing legal problems even worse. But lucky bunny, Trump had a superpower. He could make his friends' legal problems vanish with just a swish of his pen. He could spring them from prison. He could even remove the threat of prison. And they all knew it. Deep in their little hearts, they cherished it. Breaking news right here, and I'll share it with everybody. I was just handed this. President Trump has called Roger Stone and told him that he will commute his sentence. Now, Roger Stone. And that meant the president could do something else, too. He could hint to the others that he might do those things, like, if you're nice to me, I might be nice to you, capiche? and thereby he tantalized them into shutting their yaps. They'd refuse to cooperate with the prosecutors who were sniffing around him, and they'd even back out of deals they'd already made with those prosecutors. A federal judge ruled Wednesday that President Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, breached his plea agreement. Today, Stone admitted that he abused the gag order. President Trump this afternoon officially forgave crimes committed by powerful men who abused their office for personal gains. What a mess in Mr. McGregor's garden. That is, the United States of America. This is After Trump, Episode 3, Obstruction. You know, pardons should be used judiciously. I I would advise strongly against it. It would be a terrible mistake. President Trump is engaged in the most direct, sustained assault on a free press in our history. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Then I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. No president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, has ever, ever crossed that line. Will there be more controversial pardons or commutations? The president has... They raised the possibility of of the president pardoning advisors and family members and even himself. And Kayla, the New York Times is reporting now that the president has been discussing pardoning himself. What can you tell us? This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. 
When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. This story is not a fairy tale. It really happened, though till now I've changed the names and species of the major figures in it. But the whole story in reality raises a bedeviling legal question. When, if ever, can pardoning someone itself be an obstruction of justice? More breaking news in tonight. The president of the United States just is issuing a slew of new pardons. I what get legal straight. jeopardy could he be in when it comes to dangling pardons, or really is there jeopardy? He should have had a jury, but you know what? I'll make a prediction. I think he's going to be just fine, okay? Andrew Weissman was one of special counsel Robert Mueller's top prosecutors. The president had the power to pardon people, and that apparently includes the power to dangle pardons. The relevance of that, um, to give a concrete example, is, um, is let's take Rick Gates. Rick Gates. Rick Gates, former Trump aide Rick Gates. Testified he hid foreign bank accounts and helped Paul Manafort file false income tax returns. Gates was the campaign's deputy chair. Now, Rick Gates was the guy Friday to Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort. Gates is one of the people Mueller prosecuted who was dazzled by the possibility that the president might pardon him, which is what made his prosecution so difficult for members of Mueller's team, like Weissman. Under normal circumstances, what a prosecutor does is you develop the best possible case you can, a so-called rock crusher. You want to have the person, and particularly the person's counsel, understand that there is no way out. The person's going to be convicted. Um, and, and ideally, what they've, the crimes they've committed are also serious, in which case it gives a maximum incentive for that person to cooperate. And that's how you sort of move up the chain. You, do get, you get a toehold into the case by developing that kind of evidence. Ideally, on junior people, they cooperate and, and you move up as far as the evidence will take you. Because the way that we build cases against the leaders of closed, corrupt criminal organizations is by flipping people up the chain. Trump Business Organization has struck a legal immunity agreement with federal prosecutors. It is the second day in a row a man with close ties to President Trump has made a deal. Some may call it flipping. Some call it diming out. But non-mobsters call it cooperating with authorities. Whatever you call it, witnesses and henchmen who break ranks with a target they might otherwise protect are a huge asset to investigators. Folks on Mueller's team were building a mountain of evidence to encourage some of these people to be forthcoming, to show them both how many of the mysteries the team had already cleared up and how much it would behoove these witnesses, these henchmen, to tell the truth. But in that familiar prosecution dance, this time there was a skip in the record, because this time the target had more control over the witnesses than investigators did. Because this target, and this target alone, could flash a presidential pardon that would make everyone's problems just go away. Problem in um, the special counsel investigation is you can identify somebody like Rick Gates, who, while culpable, was clearly far less culpable than his boss, Paul Manafort. 
And we developed a really strong case. We met with his counsel. We showed them binders of all of the evidence. We had the agents and analysts walk them through it. You do all the sort of classical things um, that you do in developing a case and in flipping people. But then the thing that you you are not used to facing is that the person who you are who you sort of have in your sights as a potential cooperator can think, well, you may have a really strong case and you might indict me, but I could be pardoned. In January 2018, Manafort told Gates that he had talked to the president's personal counsel, unidentified here, and they were, quote, going to take care of us. Manafort told Gates it was stupid to plead, saying that he had been in touch with the president's personal counsel and repeating that they should sit tight and will be taken care of. And with Rick Gates, one of the very unusual things that happened is he came in to a, to multiple proffer sessions, admitted his guilt, and then had second thoughts. That's usually not the time because you've, you've then you know, admitted everything to the government. You know, his counsel completely understood that that's not the ideal way to do things, to say the least. But what was going on was this last minute effort um, by uh, people aligned with the White House to say, sit tight. Um, essentially, these are my words, we'll take care of you. Um, and so you have that that tug of war. Um, and that was really the last person we won that war. Suddenly, all those in Trump's orbit saw another way to evade criminal accountability. They just stop cooperating and stay quiet. And maybe the president would just swoop in at the last minute. There were also other unsavory characters like the Michaels, Flynn and Cohen. Michael Cohen back before Congress today after that explosive public testimony yesterday. Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, back in court today over a motion to dismiss his case. The pardon to obstruct vibes reverberated throughout the investigation, and in important ways, the tactic worked. Manafort held out on Mueller, and he got a pardon. Trump announced full pardons for Paul Manafort, his former campaign manager, who was found guilty as part of the Mueller investigation. The actual statement of the pardon reads like the president wrote him himself. I mean, he talks about the Russian collusion hoax. Flynn walked away from his plea deal, and he got a pardon. President Trump wiping out the conviction of his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Stone went to trial and got convicted. He never made a deal, and he got a commutation and ultimately a pardon. Um, is this true? Have you been pardoned? Um, I believe it is true. Uh, my attorney has now checked with the White House counsel and we have assurances that the media reports. And the ones who cooperated, well, Rick Gates and Michael Cohen, no pardons for them. The message was loud and clear. This wasn't the first time a president had used the pardon power in a self-serving way. But mostly, the pardon power has been used in a public-spirited fashion. As Bob Bauer puts it, pardons were not always thought to be a rare act as president. There is a long and complicated um, history to the presidential exercise of the pardon power. There was a time when it was thought um, that presidents really ought to use it relatively generously to redress instances of injustice that couldn't be addressed any other way. You'll remember Bob. He served as White House counsel to President Obama, and he's the author with Jack Goldsmith of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. That's the basis for this podcast. 
the traditional bases for the exercise of the pardon power acknowledged in the courts are, first of all, as instruments of healing or reconciliation during periods of national stress or in the aftermath of periods of national stress, or alternatively to rectify uh, individual injustices or to display mercy where mercy ought to be bestowed. There was a a stretch in our modern history where presidents exercised a significant restraint in the exercise of the pardon power, and they issued relatively few and in not particularly controversial cases. Now, there were always exceptions. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, have granted a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. So Ford's pardon of Nixon, of course, is the outstanding exception, but there are the pardons that were issued by George H.W. Bush to the Iran-Contra defendants at the end of his term, one month before he left office, and of course, a rash of pardons that Bill Clinton issued also as he was leaving office at the end of his second term that occasioned a significant amount of controversy, triggered an investigation in the Southern District of New York, and also was the subject of congressional hearings. Pardons are attractive to presidents because there's so few limits to the pardon power, which is why you find so many pardons in the last days of an administration. And all of those controversies center around essentially two points. One, bypassing the admittedly voluntary self-adopted procedures of having the Department of Justice involved in vetting pardons through the Office of the Pardon Attorney and having it handled on a much more closed basis in these controversial cases within the West Wing. Related to number two, self-interestedness or even potential corruption in the issuance of the pardons. While Trump's pardons raised the public's awareness of the excesses of the pardon power, Trump was by no means the first president to abuse and stretch the ethical limits of its power. This is Margaret Love. Margaret served as an executive branch pardon attorney in the 1990s, and she now represents clients seeking pardons. The pardon attorney was established in the 19th century at the time of the Civil War when the attorney general uh, decided that President Lincoln had too soft a heart and had to take control of uh, his boss. And the attorney general then declared that all applicants for pardon would come through him. And that was the beginning of the system that we still have now, at least on paper, where the attorney general, assisted by the pardon attorney, investigates and makes recommendations to the president on theoretically, at least, all applications for pardon or commutation. Until quite recently, that system worked very well. And even though it was housed in the Department of Justice, the fact is that the Attorney General wears two hats. And the hat that he wore to advise the president was not his hat as chief law enforcement officer, but rather a member of the president's cabinet. Love says the pardon process began breaking down under President Clinton, but Trump was unlike anything the country had ever seen before. He has had no respect for the ordinary pardon process. He seems to regard pardoning as an intensely political and even a theatrical exercise. 
probably all of his grants have some precedent in history, even the ones that appear most irregular, reaching into ongoing cases, that kind of thing, cutting short prosecutions. That's been done before. What hasn't been done before is a almost complete bypassing of the kind of ordinary process that regular people have access to. And, and that's what really sets Trump apart, that, that his pardon grants are really intensely personal. And he doesn't want advice, really, about them. He likes to do them himself. And it is a theatrical kind of a pardoning that we have never seen before. Trump's view on the pardon dropped all pretense of process from the White House. The notion that the president would be constrained by embarrassment of what one of the members of the convention said that he would be afraid of the damnation of his fame to all future ages, and that would be the constraint on the president's power. But that doesn't seem to be a constraint on President Trump. While many presidents have shown the shortcomings in the absolute pardon power, Margaret hits on something unique in Trump's use of pardons. It's retrograde by centuries. Trump's fiat pardons harken back to the era of kingly pardons. They're performative acts meant to curry favor with the masses while quietly protecting valued inner circle criminals. Certainly Trump did not speak eloquently of mercy when he made his pardons, and he almost never implied that the people he pardoned were wrongly convicted though he did state bluntly that people like Manafort and Stone and Flynn were victims of the witch hunt that was really meant to get him. But there were far more aspects of Trump's pardons that made them different from the pardons of past presidents. The first one is the composition of those pardons and the number of them that didn't even pretend to have a public-spirited dimension to them. No president before Trump has ever issued uh, as many pardons, the preponderance of the pardons that he's issued, grounded in self-interest, the advancement of political objectives, the reliance on recommendations for political purposes or personal preferences by political allies. And this has meant routinely bypassing the recommendation function of the Department of Justice through the pardon attorney, and also the issuance of pardons that just on the face of it raised the pro prospect uh, that he was rewarding people for helping him, say, in the criminal justice process by withholding testimony or falsifying testimony. So that's where the thorny question of obstructing justice comes in. At one level, this question should be easy. The sort of business is to uh, fight back against the notion that the pardon power is absolute because it isn't. And there are a lot of different ways in which we can show that it's not absolute. Even, uh, and I say even, uh, Bill Barr, uh, the president's former attorney general, said during his confirmation hearing that a pardon cannot be used as an instrument for obstructing justice. Is it permissible for a president to pardon a member of his administration in order to prevent testimony about illegal acts? If a pardon was, was a quid pro quo to altering testimony, then that would definitely implicate an obstruction statute. If the president issues a pardon to someone in exchange for an understanding uh, that they will falsely testify or withhold evidence or in some way create 
impediments to the functioning of the law enforcement process, and that's a corrupt use of the pardon and is prosecutable. Mueller's probe concluded that the obstruction statutes do indeed apply to presidential conduct under the law. Now, here's Andrew Weissman, one of the lead prosecutors on Mueller's team. I've spent so long being a criminal prosecutor and, and on the defense side that it seemed, it seemed wrong to me to say because the president has the power to do X, it means that no matter how he exercises that power, that it can't, there can't be criminal liability. There are many statutes where your intent matters. So, you know, you can rip up a piece of paper and that is usually not a crime. But if you're ripping up a piece of paper to keep it from the government in an ongoing criminal investigation and it's been called for, that's obstruction. Um, the context is everything. It may be constitutional and permissible to issue a pardon. Think about what the legitimate reason is to dangle a pardon. Um, it, to me, the dangling was a really key sign of that intent. Now, as a practical matter, um, the problem is that because the special counsel is a part of the Department of Justice, is an employee of the Department of Justice, and we were similarly, all of us working for the special counsel were part of the Department of Justice, we didn't have the option of uh, indicting the president and um, even if, in other words, even if we thought the proof was there, even if we agreed that obstruction in this circumstance had been satisfied, there was no, the practical ability um, was not there. So we're in this unusual situation where we don't have a legal answer to that. Let's get Jack Goldsmith back on the mic. He's a professor at the Harvard Law School and the author with Bob Bauer of After Trump. Jack explains it's not entirely clear that the obstruction of justice statutes do apply to the president. There's a debate uh, among academics and people in the Justice Department about the extent to which Donald Trump, in fact, violated the obstruction of justice statute. He clearly tried to obstruct justice. That's clear from volume two of the Mueller report. But whether that's actionable under the obstruction of justice statutes is actually a very hard and open question. The question is not whether President Trump tried to obstruct justice by offering pardons or limiting the Mueller investigation. It's clear he did. The question at play here is how could you prosecute a president for obstructing the executive branch, his branch? Since the obstruction of justice statutes don't actually name the president by name specifically, that they don't actually apply to him. And that rule is informed by a constitutional principle that if Congress wants to re regulate the presidency in this context, it has to be clear. And there's a second question about whether Congress can, has the authority to uh, regulate the president. If one reads the Mueller report carefully, you'll see that you know Mueller was kind of wishy-washy on the extent to which he thought the obstruction of justice statute would apply to the president. When a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation or lies to investigators, it strikes at the core of the government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. The order appointing me special counsel authorized us to investigate actions that could obstruct the investigation. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. And his reasoning was a little contorted and unclear in several respects. 
uh, and he was fighting with the fact that the obstruction of justice statute didn't explicitly apply to the president. And the, the, both the impact of the statute on presidential and sub-presidential behavior of the obstruction of justice statute and the ease of actually prosecuting. In other words, there are at least two gray areas here that Trump managed to exploit. The first is there's no specific statute making it a crime for the president to use the pardon power corruptly. The second is that the general statutes, the bribery statutes and obstruction statutes, these don't explicitly cover the president. Jack and Bob argue that if you want to prevent what Trump did with pardons, the way forward is for Congress to close both of these loopholes. He he likes to think of the pardon power as completely unlimited. And uh, he has, uh, clearly there's been a lot of speculation. He said he believes he does in theory have the power. There's a lot of speculation about his self-pardoning. So we recommend reforms to address corrupt use of the pardons and to have Congress lay down a marker on self-pardons. On the pardon side of the ledger, Jack and Bob propose two remedies. There are two avenues Congress can take to be involved here. The first is to prevent the corrupt use of the pardon. Pardons can't be sold for money. Pardons can't be given in return for obstruction of the judicial process in return for false testimony in the president or self-protection or in the self-protection of somebody the president has identified family member or friend. And that can be done by amendment of the bribery statute. There ought to be no question that the uh, president's use of a pardon uh, is covered explicitly by the bribery statute. There is so much question about the constitutionality or the constitutional protections afforded to the president in issuing pardons, that it seems that clarity on this point not only makes it far easier uh, to defend a prosecution where a prosecution is warranted, but it sends a very clear signal to the executive branch. As to self-pardons, Jack and Bob argue that Congress should be clear on its view in law. Right now, there's actually no law on the subject except a very offhand executive branch legal opinion from the Watergate era. There is one opinion going back many years that's very cursory in analysis, to say the least, within the executive branch issued by the Office of Legal Counsel that holds that self-pardons are not constitutional. But it's not a developed position, and there are some who disagree and think that the pardon power is at least absolute in that respect. The question whether the president can pardon himself has never been resolved. No president's ever tried to do it. The president's pardon power is absolute. It's in the Constitution. Congress should be clear that that is not the case. It should prohibit self-pardons. And then a president who shows up with a self-pardon as a defense against criminal prosecution will have invited litigation. And then there's the other side of the ledger, obstruction. Because Trump's attempted obstructions went miles and miles beyond pardons. Attend, we are learning of the first report that President Donald Trump tried to fire special counsel Robert Mueller in June of last year. White House counsel Don McGahn refused to comply with the request. The special counsel says he looked at 10 incidents that could potentially have led to obstruction of justice. No collusion, no obstruction. I don't think it's for me to say whether the conversation I had with the president was an effort to obstruct. I took it as a very disturbing thing, very concerning. George, the president was at it late last night and already this morning criticizing Robert Mueller. Look at the latest. So hard on this witch hunt, this phony deal that they put together, this phony thing that now looks like it's dying. 
When federal prosecutors agree that there are instances of presidential obstruction worth prosecuting, as they did based on the facts of the Mueller report, it's maddening that the statutes don't obviously apply to presidents. Jack and Bob propose to change this. The first and most important thing Congress needs to do is to clarify that the obstruction of justice statute does in fact apply to the president. We believe that Congress can and should with a narrowly crafted or tightly crafted statute, make the obstruction of justice statute apply to the president. Uh, we propose that it do so with regard to the president obstructing justice with regard to himself, his family, or in connection with an election. And the aim of this statute is not just to check the president, give the president pause, open the president up to potential liability after he leaves office. It's also there are norms that emanate from rules like this and that impact subordinate officials and that will give them serious disincentive and pause in helping the president to do the kind of things Trump was doing. It would have been much easier for Mueller to act. The constitutional issues would have been diminished. The constitutional concerns would have been diminished. And frankly, and this is the most important thing, the actors around the president would have even more reason to pause when assisting him in these matters. Since Mueller ultimately concluded that the obstruction statutes reached presidential conduct anyway, these changes might seem redundant. Maybe all they clarify is the tautology that something that's illegal is indeed illegal. But to Weissman, someone who actually had to contemplate what a real case against the sitting president of the United States might look like, there are constructive ways to eliminate the kind of ambiguities that a criminal defendant is always eager to exploit. There's, there's no downside in having Congress um, make it clear that that's what they intended, um, so that you take away that particular argument, um, which is, is it, was it statutorily uh, something that, that was encompassed here? It doesn't answer directly the constitutional issue. Um, so, you know, it struck me as uh, something they were trying to figure out what to do in the face of, um, you know, the Constitution um, and trying to figure out practically, I assume, what can be done absent a constitutional amendment since those are few and far between. So I, I viewed it as, as just, you know, probably helpful. The pardon power was designed to be a tool for correcting wrongs. Any system of justice applied to a whole nation is going to have failures. A pardon is there to correct miscarriages of justice and outright injustice. It was always believed that if a president abused his pardon authority, it would be so appalling to so many at such a gut level that the checks on the president would instantly kick in. He'd be impeached, forced to resign, voted out. Trump pushed this theory. And the results were worrisome, to say the least. Jack and Bob spell out crucial legal remedies for presidential obstruction that sound very elegant. But none of this is easy. Targeting the president for indictment, any president, whether you like the person or not, should not be taken lightly. At the same time, because the Constitution gives a president a big sword in the form of pardons, anyone in the Oval Office will find a galaxy of leeway for wrongdoing and obstruction of justice with that power. And that can't stand. 
In short, our incorrigible Peter Rabbit and future Peter Rabbits need to understand the clear limits of mischief. So what Trump did can't happen again. Because there will be attempts at obstruction in the future. Check out Jack and Bob's book, After Trump, for more prescriptions on building good fences to keep misbehaving presidents in check. This podcast is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. The series is executive produced and hosted by me, Virginia Heffernan. From the Goat Rodeo team, scripting and audio production from Zachary Frank. Editing and executive production by Ian Enright. This episode was written by me, Benjamin Wittes, and Zachary Frank. From the Lawfare team, production assistants from Rohini Kurup and Bryce Clem. Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief. Special thanks to Andrew Weissman and Margaret Love. Subscribe to this series for more episodes of After Trump, and be sure to help our work by leaving us a rating and review. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening.